Hi, and welcome to the Willow Ridge Church Weekly Podcast. This is where you can find audio for our current and past sermons. We hope that you enjoy this week's installment, and be sure to check back next week to hear the latest message. Thanks for listening. Glad that y'all are here with us today. If you've got your Bible, go ahead and open it up to Matthew chapter 27. So we're going to continue on as we uh, are preparing our hearts uh, for Easter next week and and, and what God is going to do with that. Uh, I do want to remind you guys, uh, you've heard this every week now uh, for for several weeks, Uh, we're going to be having three services on Easter Sunday. Uh, We're going to ask that you register for one of those services just so that we can make sure uh, that we, if it's going to be our outdoor service, that we have the right amount of chairs set up. Um, And if it's going to be inside, like just at the 930 service uh, just earlier today, uh, there was only a handful of seats that that were available. So we have to think through uh, those things. So make sure that you do that. Uh, The outdoor service and the indoor services, the messages will be identical, um, and we will do Lord's Supper at all three of those. Uh, The outdoor service will just uh, have acoustic worship, and it'll be all family worship. So babies all the way through, grandma and grandpa will all be out there together. For the 930 and 11 services, we're doing a family service like we've done before, but the nursery is going to be available for that, uh, for those two services. But other than that, We'll be in here uh, having a good time, uh, worshiping and celebrating together. We want you to invite your your friends, your neighbors, your family members. I know um, my in-laws are going to be worshiping with us um, that Sunday, and we're excited about that. We just want to encourage you, if you could please, to register ahead of time so that we can uh, provide what we need to for that Sunday. So as we dive into this passage of Scripture in Matthew 27, you know, you hit the point with, with the Easter story as we talk about it where uh, the culmination, and, and, and this, is, this is key, is going to be next Sunday when we talk about Resurrection Sunday, when we talk about the fact that the tomb is empty, which, which is an important part, right? Like, that must happen. If Jesus is still dead in the tomb, then what we do here is a waste of time. Like, let's be honest. If Jesus is still dead today, then this gathering of worshiping is worthless because the, the whole point for, for us and, and the point of the gospel is that he is alive and he is risen. And so we celebrate that. But in the story and in the narrative of the Easter story, there's so many different twists and turns as, as we go through it and we're able to see and draw from these, these pivotal events that happen and take place and that reveal to us more who Jesus is, that speak to our heart, uh, more of our depravity and our sin and who we are now in Christ. And last week when we looked at Judas and, and Peter and how there was, there was, a, there was a failing in, in both of them. Right? Peter d- denied Jesus. Judas sold out Jesus. And we've got both of these instances that happen. And, and, and they're both sin in, in different capacities. But, but what we see on the end of their stories, what we begin to know as Judas killed himself because of a lack of understanding of grace, and, and Peter, in all of his fail, failings, went on to be, be a church planner who would go out and proclaim the gospel and, and share. Uh, the, the same man who was afraid for people to know that he was with Christ uh, stood up before that same group of people and, and said, hey, you killed, you killed the Messiah. You did this. And it's because Peter understood grace. And so, so when we look at that and begin to understand, I had somebody ask me this week, 
They said, you know, as, as, I, as I try to understand uh, Judas's path and Judas's life, do, do you think that, that Judas would have been given forgiveness by God in, in spite of all that he had done? And my answer was, was absolutely. That, that's what grace is. That's what, what God's working and doing. You know, Judas sold out Jesus, and while that's horrific in, in that, uh, uh, God would still extend the same grace that he would extend to, to Paul, who would become Saul, who was a mass murderer, right, of Christians. But, but that's the hope. That's what we have is we experience. And, and today what we're going to look at, we're going to dive into the, to the trial of Jesus and the crucifixion of Jesus. And as we look through that, we're going to see a picture of greater clarity of what Jesus is doing that's going to lead him to the cross, and then what Jesus is going to do for the, the, the tomb will be empty to give you and I hope and, and, and reason to celebrate. So let's start reading in Matthew 27, starting in verse 11. It says, now, now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priest and elders, he gave no answer. And then Pilate said to him, do you not hear many things they testify against you? How many things they testify against you? Let's get verse 14, but again, he, he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. What we see starting in verse 11, we see this trial of Jesus. And, and as we look at the trial of, of Jesus, it's important for us to know in a world that, that speaks about injustice, that's not a word that is foreign to us and, and to our culture, that the trial of Jesus is the largest injustice that's ever been done to, to one individual. What we see happen and take place in this series of, of trials and, and conversations that, that Jesus will have filled in Matthew 27 is the greatest injustice known to humanity. The greatest uh, uh, building of, of, of injustices that we, we see. And when we look at the whole narrative of all of the Gospels where, where these are, are, are laid out for us, we see that there were six injustices that were committed that night against Jesus. Six things that would cause protests to riot in, in a day like today. Six things that, that would cause people to say, that's not right, I don't stand for what has happened and, and what has taken place. But yet it's what happened to Jesus. And yet everyone was silent, except for the call to, to crucify him. The, the first injustice that we see is that this trial happened at night and with no advance notice. Now, now both of these things are illegal, so this is really 1A and, and 1B. Trials didn't happen at night, but yet this trial happened at night so that people who, who may come forward wouldn't come forward, and so it was hidden away. There was not notice that was given. So imagine this, right? Like, like if you're on your way home, right? We, you shouldn't, but let's say you get 
caught for, for speeding. Maybe that's something that some of us struggle with, right? We'll say you get caught for speeding. Well, well you know you're going to find out the, the date that you can stand before to defend the reason or to find out what's going to happen with this speeding ticket. And the same thing existed in the time of Christ. If you were going to stand trial, there was notice that would happen. But Jesus is betrayed, arrested, and put before trial. These are the events that we see. Both of these events were illegal according to Jewish custom. The, the second thing that we see is that the judges here are really acting as the prosecutors. Like We think that the Roman government is the one that is truly trying Jesus and the judges of Jesus, but, but Pilate and the government, they're, they're just a figurehead. The men who will bring the charges about Christ will be the same ones who, who work to condemn Christ and who pronounce his judgment. So imagine you go into court and the judge is the one pleading for your guilt, whether you're guilty or not, right? The deck is stacked against you. The second injustice that we see, the, the third one, the witnesses that testify against Jesus present false testimony, and we know that because their testimonies contradict one another, right? They didn't have time to get their stories straight, and as they go through in a just system, they would see, well, hold on, this person says one thing, this person says another, this person says another, they're both against him, but they all can't be true because they contradict one another, and they would throw them out, but that doesn't happen for Jesus, they're held as, as credible. Now, there were witnesses who, who spoke on behalf of Christ. But their testimony, in, in Jewish custom, okay, if, if, if someone came forward and said, and, and they're held credible, no, I, I saw them, they were not speeding. And then another person, that they were not speeding, they were not speeding. What would happen is eventually enough cases were built to where the judge would step in and say the charges are dismissed. And the witnesses who speak for Jesus, even though their stories line up, they're largely ignored and they press forward with the trial. The sentence of crucifixion that is given to Jesus did not fit the, the accusation or the perceived crime. It would literally like, like being getting sentenced to, to death for, for shoplifting, all right? Like, well, that's not what our courts, and if that happened to someone, we would all say, this is injustice that took place. This shouldn't be. But for Jesus, it's what they demanded. The last in, injustice that we see, and, and we'll read this in, in just a little bit, kind of foreshadowing what's going what's to happen. Pilate, the, the government leader, right, is blackmailed to, to give the people what they want. The leaders basically say to, to Pilate, if you don't do what we want, we'll, we'll riot. And you're like thinking, like, well, what's, what's the big deal of that? Like, how's that call in his hand? Well, if, if word gets back that Pilate can't, be the, can't keep the people under control, one of two things could happen to Pilate. Pilate could be removed from, from his power and from his seat, and from authority, and, and what that would mean when he would lose his career that he had worked hard for. But the, the other piece with, with Pilate with that is if it got too out of control, it could cost him his life. And so here's a man who's, who's looking at the situation 
where he doesn't see a, a way out that's right, but he at least sees a way out that doesn't condemn him. And so he does what the religious leaders in the crowd want. But verse 12 and, and verse 14, there's something very interesting that, that we see in, on behalf of Christ. As the charges that are, that are false are, are brought before him, as lies are shared about him, as people who would speak truth about him are ignored, Jesus says nothing. And so it asks us the question, why? Why would he say nothing? Why not to take a moment and, and to use a phrase that we have, right? He's got his day in court. Why not defend himself? Why not say, no, all these people are lying and, and I can prove how, how what they're saying isn't true? Why wouldn't Jesus defend himself? Why wouldn't Jesus set the record straight and say, I know that you've got this charge of me and this charge of me and this charge of me, but let me tell you who I really am. Let me tell you where I'm really from. Let me tell you what I've come to do. Why does Jesus in this moment, in this trial, where injustice after injustice after injustice has taken place, why does Jesus not fight for himself? And the power of what's happening in this moment is not found in the words that are said, but it's found in the silence of Jesus. And it helps us understand that Jesus is the silent substitute. I want us this truth to ring true in, in your life and mine. This room and the people who are watching online and the people who were here earlier, we have a lot of things who are different, that are different about us. But the one trait that marks us all similar, the one trait that marks all of humanity alike is this. We're all guilty. Now maybe we've done different things, but in the court of God, we're all guilty. We all have sin. We've all uh, committed uh, this, these acts. We've all violated the will and the law of God. And, and Jesus is the only innocent person. No charge of, of wrong could, could ever be brought up against him. He didn't break the law. Jesus is the only person who can stand before a court and say, in every way, with every word, with every thought, with every action, I'm innocent. But what about this, innocent? What about this, innocent? What about this, innocent? So why doesn't Jesus even say that? Why must he be this silent substitute as he stands in this trial? He can be the substitute, but why can he not be vocal? And if you think about it in a court case, what are you doing? You're making your appeal to those who are before you. You're making your appeal to the judge of why you're not guilty and why you're innocent. You want your story to be told. You want your rights to be insured. <laughs> but not with Jesus. You know, an interesting thing is happening in this trial where injustice rings true time and time again. 
It wasn't the judgment of, of Pilate that condemned Jesus. It wasn't the judgment of the chief priest and the elders that condemned Jesus. What condemned Jesus to death, why Jesus was the silent substitute, was the judgment of God. You know, as Jesus is standing there in that trial, as lie after lie after lie is shared, it doesn't matter what Pilate says. It doesn't matter what the chief priest and the elders and the Pharisees and the people say. The reason why Jesus is silent is God has already said guilty. Now, why would God do that? Why would God look at his son, who's innocent, and say guilty? You know, when we talk about the story of Easter and the price that Jesus would pay, we talk about the reality for, for you and I that, that Jesus paid the price for us. We, we paint a picture of a person standing before a judge who's, who's been found guilty and who deserves a punishment. But what Christ does is he comes in and he steps in and he says, I'll take on the punishment, I'll pay the debt, I'll restore everything, I'll make it right again. And that is true. That is the work that Jesus does. Jesus steps in and pays a debt on our behalf. Jesus steps in and, and, and takes on a punishment that we deserve. But there's more than that that takes place. Jesus didn't just pay the price. Jesus took on the debt. And that's why that who was innocent was made guilty. And that's why Jesus knew as he stood there, that what awaited him at the cross had been set forth by God through the testimony of the prophets of what we see. So it wasn't the judgment of, of Pilate that sent Jesus to the cross. It wasn't the judgment of the chief priest. It was the very judgment of God. Because God's judgment will be poured out. And Jesus says, for us who were found in him, I'll take on that judgment. So even though I'm innocent, I'll stand there in silence as it's said about me that I'm guilty. Let's keep reading in verse 15. It says, now at the feast, the, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had, they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they, gathered, when they gathered, Pilate said to them, who do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus, who was called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, saying, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Barabbas. 
And Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? And they all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Wow, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. And we see this this story continue to unfold where, where Pilate stands and he says, I can't find anything wrong with him. And so we've got Barabbas who is filled with evil, who's filled with depravity, who's filled with murder in his heart. Do you want us to release him or Jesus? You know, Jesus, the guy that, that's, he's done some teaching, and, and he may have said some things that ruffled your feathers, but he's healed some people and done all these good things. Who do you want? And they say, give us Barabbas. And Jesus, in his silence, continues on down the path that God has laid out for him. Now, Jesus' death was an ugly horrific death. When someone was was crucified and would have gone through the beating that Jesus would have gone through, oftentimes those who were closest to him wouldn't even recognize him because of what they had gone through. I'll never forget, a a friend of mine was was in a horrific car accident one time, and I went to visit him. And I walked into the room. It's a friend that I'd known for years, and we'd been on trips together and done a lot of things together. And I walked into the room, and I saw him laying on the bed with, with tubes coming out of him, and, and, and his face was beaten up, and he had, he had scars, and he had bruises, and he had cuts still fresh on his face and, and stitches that were there. And he was being cared for. And, and I walked out of the room and checked the door plate because I wasn't sure if it was my friend or not. And Jesus' crucifixion and the path that would take him there. Some of the punishments that they would do were, were literally done to bring him to the verge of death and then stopping so that his body could recover enough so that they could continue on. They would literally beat him and, and whip him until pieces of skin were filleted off of him with his face included. You've heard the crown of thorns. Yesterday we were working out in the, in the yard and starting the, the beauty of, of, of South Carolina was it felt like you know, spring happened for a week and then it was really hot yesterday, right? And I reached down to pull some weeds and, and, and some, some, some thorns were, were in the weeds that I, that I pulled and, and it cut my hand and they were little teeny tiny thorns like that and I had to go in tweezers and get them all out. And we can think that, that maybe that's what happened with Jesus, but they weren't. They were thorns like this that were, that were hard and then as they pressed down, would have penetrated his, his, his skin on his forehead and, and all around and, and maybe down into his, to his eyelids. The death of Jesus wasn't neat. It was horrific. It was, it was bloody. And blood is a 
powerful symbol that we see oftentimes in Scripture, both Old Testament and, and New Testament. Blood flowing was, was the symbol of life, and it's what we continue to think of. Blood spilt was the symbol of death, and, and, and oftentimes even related to, to, to not, uh, uh, not righteous death of what had happened to take place. Blood offered was, was given as a, a sacrifice, as a, as a payment for sin. And what we see in this account of Jesus is, is the power of, of blood of what will happen and take place. And so the reason why I keep talking about all of these physical things is because while Jesus was the silent substitute, Jesus was also the physical substitute. Right? Like, like we have to understand that Jesus' divinity did not spare him from the pain of his humanity. Jesus' life that he lived was filled with pain and suffering. What you go through with pain and suffering, Jesus walked through that, right? Like, Jesus knew what it felt like to stump his toe, to get sick. Like, Jesus knew what physical pain was. Jesus knows what emotional pain is. Jesus wept when his friend died. Jesus felt betrayed and alone when those deserted him. Jesus knew what that felt like. Jesus knew what the pain of care felt like as he was being led away and was going to be crucified. He knew that he had to take care and had his mother provided for. Jesus knew pain. And it's important for us to know that Jesus is the physical substitute. Jesus died. His body went through the torment of this horrific death. And God didn't set him free from it. God didn't remove the pain of the cross, and instead he poured it out on Jesus. A bloody, horrific event. But the irony is this. The blood that would be shed, the blood that would be spilled on Calvary, would be the blood that makes all of those who were saved by him clean. This week when I was reading through this passage of scripture, I found some, some great irony that God gives us in Matthew 27. Look back at verses 24 and 25. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourself. Pilate's saying, like, look, I don't want his blood on me. This man is innocent. And when people come back and say, who are the guilty parties that sentenced him to death? Who are the guilty parties that demanded this of him? His blood is not going to be found on me. And now look at verse 25. So the people respond to him. So he's saying, like, who's going to be guilty in this? And what the people say is all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Now, here's what they meant. We'll own the guilt of this. We'll take this on. That's fine, Pilate. Wash your hands. Be done with this. We will take this on. And here's the irony of this. In order for them to have any hope, in order for them to have salvation, what they need is what they declare, but they just don't know it. 
that his blood needed to be on them in the prayer for their children, right? That as Christ's blood was spilt on Calvary, that what it would do is it would cleanse and make all of those clean. So it's ironic when we, when we look at this, who we are is we are all Barabbas. We are all Barabbas. And we don't stand before Pilate, but we stand before God. And we're all guilty. We've all done it. It's our punishment. But instead, we walk free, and it's Jesus who takes it on. And in the words that the people said, but they didn't even know what they meant. They didn't know what he was talking about. They're like, our prayer, God, may your blood be on us. This is the story of Easter. Not just that the tomb is empty, but that a man died, and for his innocent blood that was spilt, it makes us clean. So Pilate sentences Jesus, releases him for this to be done, and Jesus is sentenced to death. As if this isn't enough, the Bible tells us that he is mocked, he is again repeatedly beaten, he is stripped of his clothes, he's forced to carry his cross, a crown of thorns is forced onto his head. And they take nails and they stretch his body out and through one hand and through another. And then through his feet, they nail him to a cross. And as he's nailed to it, they would pick him up and they would drop the, the cross down into a hole that had been dug. And so in those last moments as the crucifixion is unfolding, Jesus would feel the jar that would happen as that weight would slam down and the tension would feel on his hands and on his feet. And in order for him to breathe, he would have to grab with, as tight as he could with the, with the nails that were there and on his feet and would have to pull himself up so that he could breathe. And so, so he could get oxygen, he'd have to put the strain on the tendons in his hands and on his feet, on his body. And then when that pain was too much, he would collapse again and begin to suffocate. And the process would continue over and over again. And then verse 45, it says, now from the sixth hour, there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, Lema, Sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and, and took a sponge, filling it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. 
And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tomb after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. When we think of the miracle of Easter, we think of the resurrection day, we think that that who was dead is now alive, and it's true. And that gives us hope and the reason to celebrate. But the miracle of Easter is not just limited to resurrection day. The miracles of Easter are also seen in the crucifixion of Christ, of what takes place in these nine verses that we just read. And so what I want us to do is is to look at and understand that not only is Jesus the silent substitute, that not only is Jesus the physical substitute, but that Jesus is also the miraculous substitute, that in his death things happen that had never happened before. It may never happen again. The first miracle that we see is the miracle of darkness. So as Scripture unfolds the story that we just read, darkness took over the land for a three-hour time period, beginning not at 9 o'clock at night, not at maybe even 7 o'clock at night, but at noon, darkness filled the land. And not like in, in an eclipse like what we've seen before that spans for, for a few moments or, or maybe a few minutes and really only partial darkness for, for most of it and complete darkness for a brief, of, brief period of time. But from noon until 3 o'clock, darkness completely covered the land, telling what God said through his prophets would happen. So why would God do that? You see, the darkness brought on by God would symbolize the the judgment brought on by God. And in this, what we see is not the judgment of God being poured out on the people there, but the judgment of God the Father being poured out on his only son. This is the miracle that we see. The reminder of darkness is that we all deserved that. But instead, God poured it out on him. The next miracle that we see is the miracle of the veil. There was a curtain that was hung in the temple. And at Jesus' death, an an earthquake happens and the veil is is torn in two. The earthquake did not cause the tear. The, The earthquake that happened simultaneously with the tear. And as the tear rips through, it symbolizes something. And I want you to understand what this veil or or curtain was like for you to understand the miracle that happens and takes place. The Bible tells us that, that 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 the curtain was torn from top to bottom, the complete distance. And that was about 60 feet. So imagine within here a a curtain that hangs all the way down and not a partial tear, but a complete from top to bottom. And that curtain that hung wasn't thin. You couldn't see through it. 
It's not like a curtain we would, we would hang up in our, in our homes. But the curtain was four inches thick. And so this isn't a, a thread that comes loose. But what God's doing is God's saying something. You see, the temple was where you came to interact with God. The temple was where you came to hear from those who at the temple heard from God. The temple was where you came to, to go to offer your prayers to God. The temple was where you came to sacrifice to God. The temple was where you came to have a relationship with God. And God says, through the death of Jesus on the cross, that veil, that curtain is torn to be no more. And now the curtain, now the temple is Jesus. So where do we go for a relationship with God? not the temple to Jesus. Where do we come to offer prayers to God, not the temple, but to Jesus? Where do we go to be made right from our sins, not the temple to Jesus? That in this, the miracle that we see of what God moving in this is the emphasis that Jesus is the new temple. And he shows us that by the veil that's being torn next miracle that we see is the miracle of resurrection. You know, we saw and we know what's going to happen in, in the life of, of Jesus, but, but we see here as is, is well that in verse 52, it tells us that when the earth shook, tombs were opened, right? Which kind of makes sense, right? Like, like you begin to think of what, what happens when, when an earthquake comes, and, and it, it's not an earthquake maybe like we've experienced here, where it's like, hey, did a, flame, a plane just fly over like really close? No, no, like rocks split because of this earthquake. But then here's what happened that's a little bit miraculous. Dead people got up out of their tombs and began to walk around. Now, I don't know about you, but if I see a dead person walking around, I've got questions, right? Like that's been a thing that's been different for us in this last year. Death has, has been talked about more. I feel like in, in my line of work, I've, I've seen more death, death COVID-related, death not COVID-related, and, and, and everywhere in between. And here's what I know. If I uh, officiate your funeral. I'm just going to tell you, all right, let's all out right here, okay? I come, open casket, you know, they passed. We celebrate you. We celebrate your life. We celebrate Jesus, all those things that have done. And then we go out to the cemetery, and I see the hole that they're going to put you in. And I see that casket, the same casket I just saw you in, the same casket that I saw your family gather around and mourn. And I see them then lower you into the ground. And then maybe I ride back the next day. just want to make sure. And the dirt's covered over and everything's there, and there's the headstone that's right there. And then I go to Walmart, and there you are, walking around. That's going to mess with me a little bit. And I, I would think that it would mess with you a little bit. So just imagine that this is what's happening and this is what's taking place. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You were dead and now you're alive. But it's a story of the gospel. 
what is the event of the significance that marked dead people coming to life? Not the earthquake, the death of Jesus. The death of Jesus. At the 930 service, if you're here, you can, you can see it. We got our, our baptistry out. Georgia Hamilton, one of our sixth graders at our, at our church, had given her life to Christ uh, back before COVID. And we were able to talk with her and talk with her, her family and, and, and met with her. And she shared about the work that God was doing and, and was ready to, to, to come forth and, and believers' baptism and, and be baptized. And so during our 930 service, we, we did that with her and, and with her family. And it was, it was a wonderful time of what's happening and, and what's taking place in, in her life. Her dad baptized her, right? Like, and that was just a wonderful picture to see of, of, of family discipleship and what that means. And we're able to celebrate with them as, as Raymond baptized his daughter. And the same thing that happened in that earthquake happened the day that Georgia gave her life to Christ. Happened the, the moment she repented of her sins and confessed that Jesus is her Lord and Savior. You know, one, one day, short of Jesus coming back, you and I all are, are going to have someone that's going to officiate a, a funeral service. And they're going to stand near, near our casket of where we were. And they're going to say things about us, and they're going to say things about Jesus. And people are going to go out, and there's going to be a process that happens. And then one day, we'll, we'll, we'll rise, and we'll, we'll be with Christ for, for all of, of eternity. But if the spiritual work also happens, where we step from, from death to life, the Bible tells us that we are lost in our trespasses and sin, that we are dead, but in salvation, not we will be made alive, but we are made alive. We're made alive. And so what we looked at and what we talked about is as Georgia walked in to the baptistry, that was a picture of, of old Georgia, of dead Georgia. And she, she dies, and that's what it looks like when she goes under the water, and that she's dying to her sin and herself. And when she comes out, she's raised to walk in the newness of life, right? Who was dead has now been made alive, and that's the miracle of resurrection. Not that we wait for it, but we've experienced it. Now let's flip that story, that illustration that I just shared with you. Let's say something happens to you today. Car accident. Sick. Go to the hospital. You kind of know what's going on. You can hear the, the bells and the whistles and the things. You can hear the panic of the nurses and doctors and family members. And you gasp for that last bit of air, right? And then you die. And then sometime later, all of a sudden, you're not dead anymore. You find that that heart that had stopped working has started to beat again. Those lungs that had stopped working now begin to pump and air begins to fill your body again. Those limbs that no longer worked and been set in were, were, were now 
flexible and, 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 and able to move and the muscles and the tendons and the joints and, and the bones there. The decay that had taken over was no longer there anymore. It was there was newness. And you're, well, I got to go get some stuff. I need to run to Walmart, right? So you take off and somebody comes up to you and says, whoa, 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 I thought you died. Well, I did. Well, what happened? Well, I'm alive now. And, and I would think that in those stories, what would happen is a, how'd that happen? And you'd want to tell them, Jesus died. And when he died, it made a way for me to become alive again. And that's the part of the gospel for us. If we've truly died to our sin and self, if we've truly died to our trespasses and sins, and God's given us new life, then we live like it. We live like it. And then lastly, it's the miracle of confession. Right? We look back at that last verse we read, verse 54. And when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this is the Son of God. The power of the confession. The centurion was not a man who had grown up being taught to wait for the Messiah, who was not brought to the temple, who was not brought to bring sacrifices. But out of the mouth of lostness made a declaration of who Jesus is. Why? Because of what he had seen and what he had experienced. And what was laid out right before him. You know, the miracle confession is this. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. And believe in our heart of who he is. And that God raised him from the dead. That we will be saved. That's it. The miracle of the confession. I just ask you this morning. Have you experienced the miracle of of darkness, of knowing that God poured his wrath out on Jesus and not you? Have you experienced the miracle of the veil being torn that Jesus is the new temple? Have you experienced the miracle of resurrection that you've been brought to new life? And if not, then today it is our prayer that you'd experience the miracle of confession where Jesus saves you. Would you pray with me? God, we come to you today as we celebrate the fact that the tomb is empty. Jesus, we know that it was with a great price that this was made possible. So Lord, we thank you for being the silent substitute. Lord, as you could have declared your innocence, as you could have brought forth all of the injustices that were taking place, you stood there silently to take on the guilt that we deserved. Lord, we thank you that you were the physical substitute. That with that declaration of your guilt, even though you were innocent, you paid a great price. A price that, that should have been us, but through that price being paid, your, your blood was spilt. 
And Lord, I pray that your blood would be found on all of us. Lord, I pray that it would be found on our children and on our family and on our friends. Lord, those who we know and those whom we don't, that the power of the blood of Christ that redeems, that makes us new, that brings us hope, Lord, may that blood be found on us. And Lord, I thank you that you're the miraculous substitute. That is through your substitute and through your substitute alone. Where dead men and women are made alive. Where confessions change eternities. Where relationships with an almighty God is, is formed where we stand as knowing that we are the recipients of grace. Jesus, we love you. We praise you. In your name we pray. Amen. Just a moment, we're going to stand and respond in worship. I'll be down front. If you want to talk to someone about a relationship with God, I'd love to talk with you, love to pray with you, love to experience that miracle of salvation to happen in your life. Or maybe you just want to come down front and pray. It's open. Maybe you just want to stand and respond in worship. We just ask that you lead. You respond in how God's leading you. Would you stand as we worship Him? Thanks again for listening to the Willow Ridge Church weekly podcast. We hope that you enjoyed listening to this week's message. If you'd like to learn more about who we are or explore additional resources, visit us online at www.willowridgechurch.com or by searching for Willow Ridge Church on Facebook and Instagram.